Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Are you ready? Let's get to it. As more companies are shifting from sales-led to product-led, leveraging product usage data to drive your business is more critical than ever before. But what are some of the considerations organizations should be thinking about to understand if PLG is right for them? And what is the right data strategy for these product usage models? In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Asim Chandra, the CEO and co-founder of Immersa, shares what he is seeing in the market and how integrated data insights is more critical than ever before. We also talk about the role revenue operations plays to ensure accurate, comprehensive data and how revenue teams can leverage data to drive the revenue engine. So super excited to be here today with Asim Chandra, the co-founder and CEO of Immersa. For those of you who are not familiar with Immersa, Immersa is on a mission to leverage product data to accelerate revenue and drive growth for SaaS businesses everywhere. So welcome, Asim, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, uh, thank you, Rosan. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, You're known as the the queen of RevOps, so I couldn't wait to get onto your show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so let's let's talk about your backstory. Right? You've had such a long career in both marketing and in product leadership, spending almost 12 years at Oracle and 10 years at Adobe. So can you share maybe more about your background and your career journey, you know, prior to Immersa? Uh, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, I uh, grew up in India and studied engineering over there. And uh, uh, after finishing up engineering, rather than just take another job, I was seeking an adventure, and I had an opportunity to come to the U.S. Uh, through a student exchange program. And um, it landed me at a manufacturing company in Columbus, Nebraska, oh. <laughs> at a company that, that built farm equipment. Okay. <laughs> so I, I came out here to a small town and uh, spent a year and a half with this uh, program. And it was really interesting as an experience. Uh, you know, I, I had a lot of flexibility on what I could work uh, on as a as an intern. And so I came up with a program to design farm equipment on a computer versus having to do it on paper. And uh, the a process that would take you know weeks and weeks in the uh, past would take like a few hours to get done. And so they actually had me uh, take a seven or eight pound laptop. <laughs> and go from one farm in the Midwest to another. And I'd go to this farm or open up my laptop and we would design their equipment on the fly. Oh, wow. And so you can think of think of me as the e-commerce guy, you know, bringing <laughs> e-commerce to your ranch before there was the internet. Uh, so that's how my journey started. And uh, looking back, I kind of look at it and say, you know, if you could, if you could uh, disrupt uh, how farmers design farm equipment <laughs> with technology, then you can pretty much reinvent any industry with tech. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so that, that's how the journey started. Um, and then from there, I went to grad school at UT Austin. I worked for a semiconductor company, uh, came, out of, uh, came out of Silicon Valley for a Christmas break. 
And a friend of mine invited me to her workplace. And I was just blown away with the vibe uh, over there. And uh, later on, recognized that what she was actually showing me uh, at her workplace was the Netscape browser, mm. uh, which had not been uh, public yet. Uh, and had just come out uh, soon after. So I knew right away that I needed to be in Silicon Valley. And I uh, applied to one company at Oracle and got, got in. Um, uh, fun fact, my uh, offer letter was signed by Larry Ellison, as every offer letter was back in those days. Oh, wow. Um, so I joined as a product manager, uh, moved around within uh, Oracle for several years. And it was a huge learning experience for me. Uh, product management, marketing, uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, for some of the largest transactions that have occurred at that time uh, with companies like PeopleSoft and Siebel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the key takeaway is never stop learning. I mean, there was so much to learn about tech and so much to take away from them. And it just kept me interested in all the different things that were going on. So I stayed for 12 years. And then uh, a little known company out of Utah reached out to me uh, through a recruiter and I met their founder and CEO, Josh James, uh, who was uh, uh, at the time running Omniture, now CEO at Domo. And uh, I think I heard what I might characterize as the first big data pitch uh, at that time. Uh, And it just blew me away. And I could see the value of data and how that would change everything from uh, workload-driven applications to data-driven applications. So I was pretty excited about that. Uh, and the fact the company was in Utah, uh, you know, <laughs> led me to, caused me to pause a little bit. Uh, but then I picked up my bags and I moved to Utah. I lived in Park City for several years uh, and had a really exciting time. That company, of course, exited to Adobe a couple of years later. And that's mm-hmm. how I was uh, at Adobe and stayed there for about 10 years. Oh, wow. Wow. So Nebraska and then Utah and <laughs> all, all over yes. the country. So different, different, different technologies. It's super interesting. Um, so, you know, let's talk a little bit about Immersa because I think, you know, oftentimes when founders, you know, they start a company, it stems from this personal or maybe a professional experience or it's a challenge or a problem. Um, when you and your co-founder, Amon, decided to launch Immersa, what was there? Like, was there this sort of aha moment or was there like a specific problem that you face that sort of led you to this idea? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Aman and I have both worked in uh, different uh, industries uh, on data problems for the better part of a decade. And we bounced ideas off of each other all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was only, you know, uh, last year that we really started thinking about uh, this particular idea that, uh, that you now see as a MRSA. But, you know, from my perspective, I've been in and around the sales organization for about 15 years uh, at B2B SaaS companies. And the Monday morning forecast review meeting is a ritual that everybody knows uh, in that space. And if you're in an executive role, then the quarterly business review is a ritual that everybody knows. And I've sat through dozens and dozens of these meetings week after week. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we review these dashboards and metrics and the analyze data to death to understand what's performing well, what's not performing well. And you can get to the root cause, you know, fairly quickly through an iterative process, looking at these uh, dashboards through BI tools. But my biggest frustration was when it comes to operationalize any of these learnings to take action, to do something different. Then every tool, every process kind of defaulted to a manual effort between program managers and spreadsheets and emails. So that was one of our core insights is that there has got to be a better way mm-hmm. for data intelligence to flow back to every user uh, in their flow of work and to drive actionability. 
And then Aman, my co-founder, had previously co-founded another company called Plume Design. Mm -hmm. uh, with, and as a company continued to scale, one of his key observations was that he was getting hit by a lot of requests for data as the head of product and engineering. And what he recognized is that uh, data is incredibly valuable when you try to combine it from the product side to other aspects of the organization. The problem is that data doesn't want to go <laughs> across all boundaries. It's a hard problem. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, we, we were armed with these insights and we talked to over 100 different customer experience professionals uh, while we were both EIRs at Mayfield, uh, who's our primary investor. And we saw an opportunity right away with SaaS companies. There's a gold mine of signals and product data. And it's typically only the product team that has access to those signals. And so we asked the question, what if we were to unlock the value of this product data and make that available to teams that actually produce revenue? So sales and service teams. And uh, that's what led to Immersa, as, as we know that's today. That's amazing. That's great. Um, yeah, data definitely doesn't, I love the, you what you just said about data doesn't want to flow um, to all the different areas. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so you mentioned Mayfield Fund, and I know you spent several months there as what they call an EIR, right? An entrepreneur in residence at Mayfield Fund, you know, before launching the company. So how did this help you with launching the company? And, you know, is there any advice that you would have for entrepreneurs maybe considering this route? Absolutely. I mean, it was a game-changing uh, experience for us uh, as entrepreneurs. Um, I'm, an, I'm a first-time entrepreneur. Aman has, of course, this is his, his third time at it. Uh, but we both spent some time as EIRs at Mayfield, and uh, we were fortunate to be invited into the EIR program by Naveen uh, Jada, who's now on our board. Um, and the, op the opportunity from our perspective was, you know, we, we had some ideas that, okay, here's some issues that we see in this data domain. But how do we crystallize that and turn that into a into a business plan? Mm -hmm. And uh, the offer, the advantage of being an EIR is it it gave us the runway that was needed and a platform that was needed to have the conversations with uh, people in the industry and to clarify our point of view uh, through these through these conversations. So um, uh, the second advantage was that you know there's about eight or ten uh, investors at Mayfield. And each one of them covers a different domain and they would open up their point of view and their uh, perspective on their particular industry with us. And we had the opportunity to sit down and brainstorm with them. And so we learned a lot through that process from other domains and industries that were not familiar to us. And we would typically filter these opportunities through three questions. Now, first question was, is it a big enough market mm -hmm. uh, where we can have an impact? And then the second question was, is it a hard enough problem? You know, what's hard about it? Why hasn't it been solved mm -hmm. before? And then the third question that we would ask ourselves was uh, deeply introspective, which is, as a team, what's the unique perspective or point of view that we bring to solving this problem? And so we kind of went through those three filters, and that's how landed upon uh, what we're working on today. Uh, we are very fortunate to be working with Naveen at Mayfield. He's... Uh, uh, you know, years of operating and investing experience and uh, companies like, uh, you know, it's funded and taken public companies like Lyft and Donald and HashiCorp. He has this uncanny ability to uh, brainside along with us, but at the same time, ask these questions that accelerated our understanding uh, of the problem and raised our conviction around the idea. Mm. So if you're considering the EIR route, uh, you know, first of all, these EIR programs are very different depending on which uh, venture fund or uh, which accelerator that you're talking mm -hmm. to. 
But uh, the first thing you ought to be clear is who is your sponsor at the firm that you would be working with. Uh, and you want that, you ideally want that to be an, an individual, not a broader team so that there's accountability on both mm -hmm. directions. Um, second is, you know, make sure you ask a lot of questions early to clarify expectations. So for instance, you know, are you going to be working, how much of your time would be spent on your own ideas versus uh, essentially providing expertise to the fund on the ideas that they're evaluating uh, as an investment? And so in our case, about 80 to 90% of our time was uh, spent on working on our own idea. And that was important to us because we were clear that we were going to go launch a company come out, coming out of this experience. And then the third piece of advice I would have is, uh, you know, set up the, an investment framework. Uh, you obviously cannot land the right numbers ahead of time uh, before you jump in so that once you do land upon an idea, there should be clarity on uh, to what degree is the venture fund going to invest and under what conditions. Uh, and if they don't invest, then how do you take that IP elsewhere to shop it around? Um, so we had set up the right framework around that as well ahead of time. And I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, it boils down to the relationship that you have uh, with the venture partner and the, and the trust mm -hmm. that you can build there uh, that leads to great outcomes on both sides. So um, ha I'm happy to talk to people who are interested in this uh, offline as well. In fact, there's a blog post on our website that you're welcome to, to take a look. Uh, but happy to help any founders who are considering this route. Well, that's great. Thank you so much. I think that's really great advice. And it's a really very structured way, right, to think about how, you know, whether or not this uh, idea, I guess, that you have and sort of how to um, build the foundation around that. But definitely we'll have to check out that blog. And you said it's on your website? Right, on immersa.co, look under blog. That's the second blog that we posted. Perfect, perfect. Um, so we let's talk a little bit about data, right? <laughs> so we all know how critical it is, right? Have the right data at the right time to the right people. But with so many organizations, right, moving to consumption-based or usage-based models, you know, having that deep insight into your product usage data is increasingly and just incredibly important. Um, what have you seen, I guess, in terms of SaaS companies moving more into this kind of product usage model? And what do you see as some of the key challenges that are, you know, really challenges around trying to bubble up those right insights? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, SaaS was a pretty fundamental shift from the traditional on-premise model and completely changed the way that we build and distribute software. But if you think about it, it didn't really change the way we were selling software. It's the same old way. You know, you have account reps uh, going from account to account, uh, hosting uh, dinners at expensive restaurants and golf, uh, golf games to sell <laughs> software. And no customer yeah. ever really bought software. They were always sold to. Uh, and the idea of uh, product-led mm -hmm. growth uh, that originated a few years ago uh, from the open source community uh, where the investment was primarily in the product experience and was seen as a means to drive adoption and distribution. Uh, and then the second idea from the gaming industry that you could actually uh, you know, uh, give away product, uh, give away the game, and have users just sign up. Uh, and then eventually you'll figure out a way to monetize that, that user base. These were the ideas that kind of led to product-led growth as, as a new way of selling software, not just how you build and distribute software. And so... We saw a, a whole plethora uh, uh, of, of SaaS companies that just, you know, uh, adopted this approach. So one of the early ones was Dropbox, right? We would just sign up to Dropbox, start using it. And it had a bit of a viral component built in because if I use Dropbox and I want to share a file with you, then then you have to sign up to Dropbox when I sent you the link. 
And then other companies picked that same model up. So you had Asana and then Twilio and now Slack and Calendly that are driving massive adoption through this product-led approach. And of course, the pandemic accelerated this whole move, right? So sales teams could no longer actually Mm -hmm. be on the road and sell in the traditional way. And, you know, think about like some of the product that we have uh, consumed as uh, enterprises over the past couple of years. Um, You know, imagine if you had to buy Zoom the traditional way. A sales rep calls you and then you review a very extensive contract and then you, you know, negotiate a, a deal for a six-figure deal and takes, you know, weeks and months to do that. And that entire process mm-hmm. of uh, how you would consume SaaS software has completely changed. Instead, you know, we just, as an individual, we just go sign up on Zoom. And then when I invite you to participate in the conversation, then you have to sign up to Zoom. And before you know it, everybody in the company is using the product. <laughs> and then you still have to have a negotiation, mm-hmm. but it's after the fact. Right. And so that's how PLG fundamentally changed the way software is consumed. And the power shifted from executives making dec- buying decisions to really end users making those decisions at a very granular level. And so it changes mm-hmm. then again the way that you use data to design software. You have to think in terms of how to optimize the user's journey uh, all the way from when they first experience your brand and then move into your uh, online presence and then from there into uh, the product and then how do they actually have that first product experience uh, with a free trial and then convert them into a paid customer. And so the entire process is all about using data to remove friction and automating every possible uh, process so that it becomes a very smooth experience for the user. And I actually think that both uh, you know, the customer and the vendor benefits uh, through this approach. Yep, yep, definitely. I love that Zoom example because it does make a lot of sense. And as buyers, I think we are you know, much more informed. We're much more you know, kind of self, self-service is kind of what we're all looking for, sort of that frictionless process. Yeah. Companies moving into this direction, like what do you see companies, you know, really doing right or doing wrong, I guess, when it comes to, you know, connecting the dots around that product usage data? Yeah. Um, great question. And, you know, if you work at a SaaS company, then chances are uh, your product team or your engineering team is has instrumented uh, your product in some way to get an understanding of how that product is being used. And there are great, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, publicly available applications like uh, Amplitude or Mixpanel or Pendo uh, that can instrument the data for product usage. Uh, other times we see engineering teams that pull the data directly into a cloud data warehouse. So usually it's Redshift or Snowflake or Google BigQuery. And these are, this is a great first step. Uh, if you're not already doing this, you should be doing this. It's a great place to start. Just to start to understand how your customers are actually using your product. And it leads to conversations about which, what is the next feature to build? How do you drive expansion of uh, the growth of your roadmap and so on? But imagine if you were to unlock this data and make that available to your sales and service teams. And underutilization signal against, uh, or uh, underutilization against plan is an early account health signal for your customer success team. Right? So if you're not using enough product mm-hmm. and you said you were going to use it, your sales, uh, your customer success team needs to step in there. Overusage against plan mm-hmm. is an upsell signal or a cross-sell signal. So either you've consumed as much as you could have, <laughs> and now it's time for you to move to something different, or it's time time to buy more. And so that's a great signal for your sales team. Uh, you know, if 
you know, we've all, as marketers, historically measured how consumers are, or customers are coming to our website or a mobile app, and what are they doing there from an engagement standpoint, and we use that to drive personalization for our campaigns. But why not product usage data? I mean, product usage data contains a very mm-hmm. important signal on what your customers actually value in your product. How do you use that to drive more personalized campaigns? And then, you know, another area I'd point out that we don't typically think about, but if you think about your finance team actually uses that data already to figure out how to accurately build their customer. If they're not, then they should be, uh, particularly for consumption-based pricing models. But how do you also then assure, ensure that um, you're not just billing accurately, but if they're not consuming what they thought they were going to consume, that your account uh, uh, execs get involved and help the customer start to improve the usage of their product, so that will lead to better retention down, uh, downstream. So all of these are use cases that depend on the unlock on product usage data, but you also have to figure out how mm-hmm. to map it to a CRM application like Salesforce or Outreach or HubSpot or a support uh, information from Zendesk or you know, bug tickets from Jira or subscription billing from Recordly or Zora. And these are hard problems. You have to apply some intelligence on how to map these uh, across these different applications and then how to derive something that's actionable that you can then uh, deliver to your sales team or your service team or your finance team or your marketing team uh, so that they can engage at the account level or at the contact level and uh, uh, move things forward in their relationship with the customer. So these are the kinds of problems that attract us. This is why we founded Immersa and we love Mm -hmm. talking about it all day long. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I think having, you know, that integrated, accurate view of data is really, really challenging, right? Having it always on, always accurate, Um, you know, especially as, you know, an operations leader for myself, you know, being able to have that accurate, connected, you know, comprehensive data is just so important to drive all of the different aspects of revenue as you're, as you've mentioned. Um, Are there any tips, I guess, or tricks that you might have so sort of help rev- revenue teams or RevOps leaders, you know, build and sort of ensure that they have accurate integrated data? Yeah, definitely. So, look, I mean, if you uh, just look historically over the past 10 to 12 years, the number of B2B SaaS applications has exploded. Uh, there are over 15,000 mm-hmm. uh, SaaS applications today. And um, <laughs> yeah. even an early stage startup, uh, it, you know, a company like ours uh, has about 30 to 35 different SaaS applications that we depend on every day. And more mature enterprise uh, companies have, on average, over 280 different SaaS apps that are deployed. So clearly, data has become much more distributed than what it used to be in the past. And uh, mm-hmm. the first problem is, of course, you know, investing in technology that helps you uh, get access to that data to cleanse that data, to dedupe it, and then combine those data sets. And then the next set of issues that we see is how do you then uh, derive some meaning out of it? Now, most of the BI tools that we see are great at forecasting, planning, long-range uh, sort of QBRs and that sort of thing. But you know, if, if in my QBR, if I, if I have a 1,000 customers and I miss or misread the data for 10 of them, it doesn't really make a huge difference because I'm directionally still accurate. But if I'm a sales rep having a conversation mm-hmm. with those 10 accounts, I better have the right data in front of me. Otherwise, I'm going to upset that account in some way or the other. So uh, so there's a different set of problems that you have to work through in order to make that data actionable at the individual level. And that's kind of where our focus is. Um, 
we see now RevOps teams starting to pay a lot more attention to this problem. I also see some RevOps teams work far more closely with their data engineers or their data teams than they have in the past. And in some cases, a couple mm-hmm. of, of some of the forward-leading uh, companies that we've talked to have actually hired data analysts as part of their RevOps team. Uh, so that's new. That's mm-hmm. very interesting. Uh, I had not seen that before. Uh, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity here, and there's a lot of movement that's occurring. Uh, and I think I think it'll be really fun to see how the space evolves. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Um, so you talked a little bit about how companies are kind of shifting, right, from the sales-led to more product-led strategy and business models and ways of selling. Um, from your perspective, you know, what are some of the things that companies should be considering if they're thinking about, you know, maybe shifting to more of a product-led strategy um, versus sales-led? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, first of all, why should you be thinking about a product-led approach? Uh, well, because A, the uh, the unit economics are fundamentally different uh, for a PLG company. Uh, it typically starts off where the early growth isn't as fast as you would expect with a SaaS business. But uh, PLG companies tend to grow much faster and for much longer after they hit a certain inflection point, roughly about 10 million in ARR typically. And uh, you know, if you look at how value is created uh, in PLG companies versus uh, the public SaaS index, it's about 2x uh, for PLG versus public SaaS companies. So there is definitely greater value creation that occurs over a longer period of time. Uh, so that's kind of the first reason to think about jumping into it. Now, if you're an existing SaaS company, what are your choices? How do you make that transition to a PLG model? Uh, now, that's very mm-hmm. different because you have a huge investment in your existing sales processes, your pricing models, your uh, marketing approach, et cetera. And uh, one of the first questions to ask is, you know, if you're introducing a new product, why should it not be PLG and uh, how would you approach that? And then the other question to ask is, what are some of the characteristics of, what, of the markets that you serve today? Uh, that would allow you to transition over time. Uh, and may not be a complete transition. There's lots of flavors of PLG, but at least mm-hmm. to start to remove the friction from the buying process, from the discovery process, from the adoption of the product, so you can start to approach more of a PLG-like customer experience. I think that becomes really critical for you as an existing SaaS business. Got it. Got it. I love that. I think that's great advice and a great way to a good perspective on how to look at your business. Um, so, you know, as I think about the revenue engine, right, in this podcast, I always I always hope that others are going to be able to learn how to accelerate revenue growth, right, and really power that revenue engine. So, Asim, maybe from your perspective, like what are the top, you know, couple of things, maybe two or three things that you think you know, CEOs should really be thinking about today that will absolutely have the biggest impact on revenue growth? It may be some of the things that you've already covered, yeah, but yeah. what are some of those things? Yeah, so I would, uh, it's a great question. And I would frame that in the context of SaaS company CEOs, because that's kind of the universe in which we uh, currently operate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I, you know, when I talk to SaaS companies, uh, and we talked to, you know, a dozen a week, uh, there are two types of CEOs that we come across, the data privilege and the data handicapped. And <laughs> <laughs> most, uh, most SaaS companies are not lacking for data. It's how they use the data, right? And yes. how do they actually generate uh, actionable insight? Uh, I call them jewels. You know, it's, like, it's, a, it's a measure of work, right? So 
if you can generate a joule of uh, work out of your data uh, that drives revenue, a dollar of revenue, you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that's that's for that's the for first uh, uh, insight for 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 CEOs. The second is, you know, whether we, whether you choose to go with a full PLG approach because you're starting afresh today, and and you know, you should ask the question, well, why not? Uh, or you're an existing company and you sell to, uh, software the uh, traditional way, but you have to have. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the, you know, if you look back, the last eighteen months or two years has fundamentally changed the way uh, people buy software and pretty much everything else. And so we have to ask ourselves the question: What is the way of the future? Now we've talked about digital transformation for years. The last 18 months has completely accelerated that from 10 years. We you know, see that kind of change in 18 months. And so customer expectations have changed, and we need to learn what those expectations have now become and transparency in pricing, in the product experience, zero friction purchasing process, minimal implementation. Um, those are all now standard expectations in the market. So how do you shift your own business to adapt to those expectations? And then the last thing I would say is, uh, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that the tech business is a people business and uh, your employees are your greatest asset. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is completely the pandemic has completely shifted uh, expectations uh, that employees have of their employer. And as the CEO of the business, you need to recognize that mm-hmm. uh, You know, we're a company that was born in the pandemic and we started out as a hybrid model. So we have a great workplace that if you want to come into you're welcome to, and you can interact with your colleagues. But if you want to step away and do your work, uh, which requires, uh, so for collaborative work, come in for individual work, stay home and don't spend the time on the commute. So you (laughs) have to be flexible with employees to accommodate their needs. And it's a fundamental shift in the way that uh, employees now want to work with you. So I think think as a CEO, you have to recognize that. So that'd be my three pieces of advice. You know, figure out how to use data to drive work uh, across your organization, uh, the right kind of work. Second, uh, think about how customer expectations have changed. And third, really engage with your employees to learn what they're going through and uh, have some empathy for uh, those shift, uh, shift in expectations. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's really great advice. Um, yeah, I definitely think there's just been a heightened awareness of just employee engagement and people working, you know, where it makes sense. Um, so, and I love your comment about not sitting in the commute because living in the Bay area, (laughs) that's something I definitely don't miss is spending, you know, two, two and a half hours on the road. So, so as we wrap up, you know, I'd love to really know two things about you. So I always ask this to all the guests. So one, (laughs) what is the one thing about you that others might be surprised to learn? And two, what is sort of that one thing that you want everyone to know about you? Yeah. Um, so what others might be surprised to learn is, uh, you know, we're go- going into the holiday season, right? So we have uh-huh. Halloween and then Thanksgiving and Christmas. And then I'm um, originally from India. So we have Diwali and other festivals coming up uh, here in front of us. And uh, this is not a response you might expect from an adult, but I just love <laughs> Halloween. I, I do. Oh, uh-huh. I've been known to dress up as Elvis Presley in the past. Uh, <laughs> I need to see pictures of that. (laughs) They are somewhere floating around on people's phones. Thankfully, not on the internet yet. Uh, But, you know, how can you turn down the opportunity to bring up that inner child and have a little bit of fun? And, of course, uh, 
you know, I can't say no to chocolate. So that works for me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what about one thing that you absolutely want everyone to know about you? I mean, it could be the same thing. Maybe that is the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, that's, uh, that's, it's a good question. I, look, I see myself as an immigrant, uh, you know, that came here seeking an adventure. Yeah. And not only did I find adventure, but I also experienced something unique that this country brings, which is, you know, the values that this company was, uh, country was founded on, freedom, democracy, and opportunity for everyone uh, in a way that no other country can offer. So I realize now that we cannot take these values for granted, that we have to engage in a democracy to preserve what we cherish. And, and I hope that others will too. And that's what I want everybody to, to know about me as um, where I come from and, and the fact that I don't take any of this for granted. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been just such a pleasure to have a conversation with you. I've just, even before we started recording, I think we had a great conversation as well. And obviously we met and have had some time to speak to offline. So really appreciate you joining the podcast, sharing your insights. I think there's some amazing advice here for folks who are listening. So just incredibly grateful for your time. Thank you, Rosalind. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. 